we're back to the Neil Haley show. And, you know, uh, my guest today is from being the Ricardos. We're going to talk about his career and everything. Jeff Holman. Jeff, thanks for stopping by, man. And we're going to talk about your career and all these different things. But ultimately, being the Ricardos, which I watched, and I don't always get to say I've watched shows because I'm just a busy guy. I got all these interviews, watching different streams. And it was just a great, great production. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've you're seen well, some of your interviews and man, you're terrific. I, I really like your uh, your questions and the rapport that you have with your uh, guests. Uh, I was really looking forward to coming on here. Well, I greatly appreciate that. And it's just from doing it too long. It's from doing it. Anything you do 10,000 hours, done 7,000 plus interviews. It's interesting. I'm moving my one house that I house, one of my podcasts out of that place and there's like 12 years of it and it's like and i only can transfer a certain amount i'm like i hope i have all these files and i have them oh. and different things but i'm really going more big into the tv end of things because ultimately at the end of the day to get to see yourself with the celebrity on video is much more powerful and i'm sure you pick those to watch versus listening to an interview i did seven years ago so it's it's, it's just all about it and i'll be doing a lot of downloading this weekend so let's jump specifically to y'all do you always want to be an actor was that something growing up you wanted to do you know what yeah i, I started really young i started in uh, first grade we did a production of noah builds an ark and every kid in the class had to do a paper mache animal and although I'm really into arts, not so much into crafts. So I was like, oh, gosh, does everyone have to do paper mache? And they're like, well, Noah doesn't. And I'm like, I want to be Noah. You're there. You're there. I'm going to be. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Everyone's like, what? I, I'm the only person who wants to be Noah. Well, as it turns out, Noah has to sing a song in front of the entire school and all the parents. I was like, oh, singing, paper mache. Let's go with singing. And I'm not a singer per se. So I thought that I'd be just completely terrified, but some kind of little spark ignited when I was out there singing my little song. It was, oh, Noah built himself an ark, one wide river to cross. He built it out of hickory bark, one wide river to cross. So like this song goes on and like the kids are going back there. And I, I don't know, some happened. I just, some flame ignited inside me and i was just like okay i At like first this. grade you figured it out that's pretty good i want to do this forever you figured it out in first grade and you want to do it forever so when what would you consider your big break when did you decide you're i'm going to hollywood or the whole process you know what i i think that it was in high school i i i had always wanted to be an actor but it was sort of like, yeah, it's, it's a pie in the sky thing, you know, I got to think of something more practical. And then my high school theater teacher cast me as the lead in this play, Dark of the Moon. Her name is Michelle Busty. Um, and she just gave me so much confidence as casting me as the lead in that, that I was like, you know what? Maybe I'd be able to do this as a living, you know? And so... I when I went to school, my my uh, college, my dad was like, OK, we all know you can act. You don't need to go to learn how to act. So if I'm paying for school, you're going to have to study something more like serious. OK, science based. Yeah. He's a chemistry and math double major <laughs> and he's a doctor. So he's like, no, no, yet be more practical. I'm like, OK, 
So I chose marine science. Ooh. Mm, okay. Uh, and um, once I graduated from that, I, I, I came home with my science degree and I was like, okay, time to get back to acting. And uh, <laughs> yeah. did you act in school? Like when you're in college, did you do any acting? No, no. And I, in fact, I, I auditioned for the school play in my freshman year, booked the lead. And then they found out that I was a freshman. They're like, oh, we've got this rule. No freshman can participate in plays because it's just so busy as a freshman. And I'm like, forget this then. Forget it. I'm out of here. So I just never went back to the theater the whole time I was in college. Um, so I think when I, when I graduated, I, I really wanted to get back to acting. And so I did non-union commercials and films in Denver and getting ready to make my big move to LA. So finally got out here to LA. And um, I'd say another big break I had was getting my, my SAG card. Um, the, in order to get your SAG card, as an extra, you have to do like three extra jobs where you can, where like a union extra didn't show up. And so okay. you can get one of their vouchers. It's kind of difficult to do. The other way is you get a speaking role in a movie or a TV show, and then they do what's called a Taft-Hartley, where they basically pay a penalty to use you, and then you get into the union. So that was a huge lucky break that I got into the union. That was in 99, and um, just been going at it ever since. See, that's a, that's a great thing, for sure. And uh when you think about specifically opportunities and stuff, what do you think you're best known for of some of the projects you've done before talking about being the Ricardos? I'd say uh, Grey's Anatomy was okay. one of the one of the big ones. Uh, I still get uh, recognized on that sometimes. That's cool. uh, I had this. Yeah, I had this scene with Sandra O oh, where I'm getting uh, angioplasty. And um, I remember the audition. I wanted to have some kind of really funny ending to the audition. So the, the, the guy is like, you know, sort of laughing and I'm like, wouldn't it be hilarious if I would sort of drift onto drift into unconsciousness at the time. So in the audition, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the director who was Debbie Allen from fame. Okay. Fame, uh, you want to get famous? Well, here's where you start paying in sweat, right? Debbie Allen. So Debbie Allen's like, oh, the competition's heating up in here. <laughs> so that was huge getting that because that was one of my first guest stars. That's cool. And, yeah. And so you're, you're a comedian too. Is that correct? You do comedy? Uh, I'm a comedic actor, but I don't do stand up. Uh, I've, I've tried figuring out how to write jokes and I just cannot figure it out. Like I've read books about it and they're like, here's the setup and here's the turn and here's this. And then here's where you think about something funny to say about it. And I'm like, yes, that's the part I can't, that's the part I need help with. See, so. I think you'd be great if you start just continuing to go after it, just figure out how to figure out to write some material, but probably too busy doing auditions and opportunities. Anything else you said, Grace, you were known for what other things? Parks and Rec, Parks and Recreation. Uh, I got hired to do just a, a one-liner on that. And in the course of filming the scene, Amy Poehler started doing an improv with me. 
And I was like, oh yeah, I do improv, no problem. So I just like kept improv with her and we went back and forth for about five, six minutes. And then finally the director yells, cut! And all the cast and crew like bust up laughing. And then the director comes over and she's like, we're gonna give you some more lines. And that turned into a nine line guest star just from that improv. So that was really, does, really so cool. That, does that change things after that opportunity, Parks and Rec? Would you say that really opens up doors after getting- Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, huge, huge. Um, that's when some of the bigger stuff started to come in. Um, and just recently I did a, a, a guest star on Better Things and I used this uh, New Orleans accent, which I had never done before. Give me, give me it, let's hear it. Oh, okay. So, um, all right. So there's a special way. Let me tell you the, briefly the story of, of how I got the accent. Uh, basically, I, I went into the audition and I did like just sort of like a general Southern. And the, the casting assistant was like from New Orleans. And she's like, okay, what you're doing sounds kind of more Charleston. But if you rock it back into the back of your jaw, it'll be more New Orleans. Try it again. So I tried it like that and they're like, okay, okay. So then I was leaving the audition and I saw this guy who like, I see it all the auditions and he usually books it instead of me, right? And I was like, ah, oh, this guy, damn it. And he's got this natural Southern accent. And I was like, hey, where are you living now? And he's like, oh, I'm living in New Orleans. I was like, all right, that this is your job. Just go get it. I'm gonna like stop thinking about it because I'm just not. And then they're like, oh, you booked it. I'm like, what? So I totally did not want to half-ass the accent, right? I wanted to really right. nail it. Exactly. So I started calling up dialect coaches, and they're like, Uptown Garden District, New Orleans, never heard of it. Uh, try this person. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I just don't teach it. Try this person. And so I ended up finding a linguist, like a guy with a degree in linguistics. And the way you usually do an accent is you, the, the, the guy who does the accent says, like, this is how you say the first word. Right. This is how you say the second word. This is how you say the third word. Okay, now put them all together and memorize that. But this guy was like, okay, I'm going to show you how to hold your mouth and your tongue okay. so that everything you say comes out in that accent. Right. I'm like, what? So he's like, basically, got to. Pin your the points of your mouth down like this, and then hold your tongue really flat, and do the Charleston accent, and then everything comes out like New Orleans. That's it. That's really good. So what are you gonna, <laughs> what are you gonna get? What are you gonna audition for that for something else out there? Right. <laughs> I gotta yeah. put that. I gotta put that on my resume. New Orleans, it's, like, it's gotta go on your resume. Right after I did that, they canceled the NCIS New Orleans and some other New Orleans show, and I was like, "Oh, darn it! I just missed my opportunity." <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I gotta put that one on my resume. See, now. That accent could be in one of the big shows right now, where you got to say, "Hey, you got to bring a New Orleans person in," you know, and that's it. There you go. You know. Done. Done. It was great. On the on the day of the filming, our stunt coordinator came up to me and he's like, so we're from the South. 
where are you, you know, from the South? And I was like, oh, no, I was born and raised in Colorado. He's like, no way. I'm from Memphis. And I would swear you're from New Orleans. I was like, all right, that's all I needed to hear. So they canceled those other New Orleans shows. So you have to think about what one, the History Channel, they got to need you for a voice like that. Something. Someone's got to need a Civil War reenactment type of movie coming out, whatever. Something. Anything. Okay. So, any other uh, after that? Any, what would you say? Other things you've had some opportunities. And then we're going to being the Ricardos because you've been acting for years, you know. That's right. I have. Um, You know, one of the very first things I did was Monk. And I absolutely loved that show i mean i watched it religiously and my wife and i were like so into it <clears throat> that when i got on the show i was like hey uh you guys i noticed that that you said this thing about his ex-wife in, or about his his deceased wife in season one but then you said this other thing in season two which is kind of contradictory so you know which is it and the, the director of the show goes, hey, Tony, this guy's an expert on the show. What do you think? And Tony's like, uh, it's both. And I was like, okay. So like, basically they hadn't even thought about this. And it was only because I was like, so into it that they're like, um, all right, let's figure <laughs> it out now. But that was amazing. I, I absolutely love getting to work with Tony Shalhoub and uh, Trailer Howard. I and mean, they were both like super, super cool. Um, that was one of the very first jobs I did. Uh, the OC, got to work with one of my heroes, Peter Gallagher. He's so, so fun to work with. He was super nice. We were do- shooting this uh, this night shoot in the rain where basically they wrecked in the rain and i'm this trucker who comes along and i'm like hey you guys all right i'm like shouting through the rain and so they had brought out the rain machines and stuff and and they uh they're like make sure you dress in warm clothing because you're gonna be soaked all night <laughs> and the 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 main cast had like wetsuits underneath their clothes and stuff and but um man that was fun that was super fun yeah I've had, I've- we're back to the neil haley show and I tell you, one topic that gets people going is the Titanic. And I'm very, very uh, blessed every day to interview very interesting people. And my guest today is Dr. Loring Stead. And Dr. Stead is a former doctor, and I'll explain that, but also is going to talk about the Titanic today. I consider you a Titanic expert. Would you say after you've written this book, you're a Titanic expert? Well, I, I, I wouldn't claim that myself, but I'll tell you this. What if the sinking the Titanic was no accident? Sinking the unsinkable. And I uh, was foot and ankle surgery for 35 years. Uh, Always had a real keen interest in the Titanic because I always heard about this relative that went down in the Titanic when I was a kid. Uh, I heard about this guy, Boy Billy, and uh, it ended up that after like 10 years of hearing about this when I was a little kid down in Harmony, Minnesota, Northern uh, Iowa, Southern uh, Minnesota, here we are landlocked and I'm hearing about the Titanic. Right. Didn't think much about it for about 10 years. You know, you always hear things about relatives, a crazy uncle in the closet, who knows what's going on. And then it, we moved to a different town. Nothing really happened. I had a normal life for about 10 years, then went off to uh, school at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. And one of the first assignments was 
in this course called Paideia, which is uh, Latin for knowledge. It was a combination of like uh, English and history. We had to deep dive into our family. So I deep dived into our family. And here this guy kept coming up, W.T. Stead, W.T. Stead. W.T., that's William. William Thomas Stead, that's boy Billy. I heard about 10 years of boy Billy forever, knew everything about Billy. And then I started researching it during that time at Luther. Uh, and everything I read, it's like, you know, I had like six months to do it for this little class. Right. And it was just unbelievable. Everything I read, it's like, I already knew that. I already knew that. I already knew that. Exactly. So now, go back. So then after 35 years of practice, I always had an interest in the Titanic, but asking if I'm an expert in it, I hit an iceberg called COVID and had to retire. At that time, my wife, double COVID actually, so I'm, uh, that's another story. But in that time, my wife said, you know, you've always been interested in your relative. Why don't you deep dive on him? So literally there's probably 140 some books with Titanic in the name. I've read, uh, uh, read probably half of them. So in that sense, I probably am getting closer to be uh, in that top group of people that know about the Titanic. And then where I am unique is we have a huge reservoir of oral tradition, at least 10 years that I sat there in this little corner listening to all my ancestors talking about boy Billy, who ends up being WT. So now reading all these books to date, very seldom do I come about across something that's new. The names make sense. The scenes make sense. It's really, really been exciting. Uh, the five people on the boat, WT was really interesting. He was the world expert on child sex trafficking prevention. And mm. it, it, your listeners, don't believe me on anything. Start Googling this. I'm not going to spoon feed you anything. Google it, read it, and you'll see oh my gosh, this is legitimate. Now I am proposing something new that I'm getting. Stead was a pretty interesting character, you'll see. He was living in the Victorian age, 1850 to 1910, one of the youngest editors of a major newspaper in London called the Pall Mall Gazette. Well, lo and behold, he was kind of a troublemaker. He was kind of always sticking the... Uh, uh, in, in, sticking the side of the, the Victorians going, well, we don't do this, don't do that. It's like, yes, you do. Look at over on the east side of London is Jack the Ripper. He wrote about Jack the Ripper. He wrote about bad, the underbelly of society that unfortunately humans are about. Well, lo and behold, Stead, being a troublemaker, I think I have gotten onto a new word. He invented like 20 words. Well, I think one word I have is historical friction. Because they go, what genre are you? Are, are you in fiction or nonfiction? It's his, historical friction because I'm going to reveal a bunch of stuff never before revealed. It's going to make a lot of people uneasy. Well, he was the leading expert on child sex trafficking prevention. They wanted Stead dead. Google it in 1885. He basically uh, single-handedly helped bring uh, age of consent from like 13 years of age up to 16, which was huge. That made a lot of the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeff Epsteins of the world very mad. For many years, they tried to plan. They got to get Stead out. He's, he's out. And then uh, on this same ship was his best friend, John J. Astor, the best, uh, the richest man in the world, the Guggenheims, the Strausses. And what did those three families have that were interest? 
they were not in favor of coming off and going to the, the new thing called the Federal Reserve System. And if you start now, the first assignment for your readers, Google W.T. Stead, get a little background and see what he's about, then read Jekyll Island. What happened in 1913? We invented this new thing called gold standard. Who was for that? The families of the, and this is all true, so this is not ruffling many feathers, but the truth is, who was for that? The Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, J.P. Morgan. Mm. Now, J.P. Morgan will be an interesting part of this because he owned the Titanic. Oh, my gosh. I have a story where Stead was notorious late. We're always late. Steads are late. So Stead gets to the Titanic the morning it's going to sail. Okay. So this is April 10th. Gets there. Mid-morning, should have been there more, far earlier because it's going to sail uh, to France that first time uh, at about noon. He gets there a little bit late, uh, gets out of his carriage. Imagine the event, Neil. Imagine there's like 50 to 100,000 people that's docked. This is the biggest thing of its time. It's magnificent. It's huge. It's unsinkable. This is the greatest ship of all time. Everybody in London was down there. And how were they down there? A lot walked. A lot by, came by horse or carriage. Some came by train. There was a train station not far away. Some drew, drove this new thing called a car. Could you imagine just the sights and sounds and noises and smells that are occurring at this station at this time? Well, Stead gets out of his carriage at the uh, bottom of the little ramp going up. He hated heights. He was met at the bottom by the chief uh, purser. Stead had traveled, Stead was well known in the Victorian age. And he was met uh, by the first purser, uh, chief purser, uh, McElroy, I think the guy's name is. And uh, he goes, good morning, uh, Mr. Stead. How are you doing? Come on up. And Stead's like crawling up the little ramp and he gets to the top. Who's up there? Captain Smith. Captain Smith knew Stead well. This is a story passed down through the generations. Wow. That one I haven't been able to validate, yeah. but the names are all there, but whatever. So when they get to the top, Smith is getting ready to leave because he's got to get the ship going. And the purser gets him up there and uh, uh, he says, I apologize to you guys. Purser says, You're, uh, I think he was seat suite 89 is not quite ready yet. Can you just talk to the captain here a minute? And Captain Smith was happy to do it because Stead was well known and the circles of being able to tell a story. And just like this, all being said, I could be wrong. I don't know, but Stead was known to uh, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, which is a mummy story that is won't be covered today, but we'll cover this another time. He snuck a mummy on board. That's another whole story. Lo and behold, he and Smith are to the side just a minute while his room's getting ready. So he's looking down at his people uh, getting in and getting out. And he sees this carriage pull up, real fancy carriage, up, out, opens the door, real nice, pretty young gal gets out, right. starts heading up the thing, and who gets out behind him? I don't even know if I should reveal this yet, because these you are in the book. It's in the book. You should not. So a very famous man gets out from behind this young, kind of starlet almost like, and Smith instead kind of chuckle at each other and go, I wonder who his niece is this time. Oh my gosh. So, so this guy was niece that you find out. He was noted on. Yeah, he was noted to travel with younger women. Well, this young lady starts up the gangplank. Right away, this uh, older, very distinctive gentleman 
with a beard, with a mustache, and we'll detail that further in the book. In the book. So you can't keep giving this away, Dr. Stead. Oh, we won't. Well, it'll be good. So the sick, the unsinkable, but in that, he, this is just one of many, many stories. He gets like a little manila envelope, right? And they can see down there. And he reads it, closes it, calls the woman back. Right. Gets her in the carriage, not till then, had Smith instead in this gentleman's seen eyes, connected eyes, Smith instead look at each other, we're never going to see America. There is some reason that person didn't get on the ship. What? And who, what? And, that, and who was the one that did not get on the ship? Not going to tell you. Yet. Oh, see, you're killing me. All right, so let's kind of go. So let's just say very famous, very known. But these are stories that... Uh, what about William? Did William go on the ship? Did he end up in the ship when the Titanic's... You're, you're WT. WT is on the ship talking to Smith up on top. No, but what about okay. when the Titanic sunk? He was on the ship. He, he, he oh, died. yeah, absolutely. He was in cabin 89. He uh, is depicted... Uh, he, he was the guy given credit for uh, at the end of the uh, movie, uh, they played Nearer Thy God to Me. Uh, Stead requested that. He's given credit for requested. Well, oh, known on the Titanic show. movie, yes, which everyone watches oh, well, In real life, it would bag the movie. I'm talking about reality stuff. Oh. He's given credit in. You can Google that. And there's a lot of mystery and intrigue about the Titanic. But what I'm going to be revealing is the pre-Titanic stuff. This is stuff that ends up, we'll, we'll cover, the, the book will cover the Titanic, but this is what happened before the Titanic left to incite some evil people in America and England to conspire to say, we have to make sure that ship never sees America. Okay. And they weren't going to sink it. It was unsinkable. Their goal was to confirm who was on the ship, and they were able to do that. They basically hired a couple of the officers on the ship who had no idea why they were doing this. Humans respond to money. They were going to be paying big sums of money to at some point bump up against an iceberg, right. force it back into Halifax. They can't sink it. It's unsinkable. In Halifax, some things were going to be occurring. Either guides were coming to come on the ship or instead uh, in that some of these guys might have went off that they were there for a couple of days, but they were going to make sure W.T. Stead, the Strausses, the Guggenheims, John J. Astor, and the fifth one, Archibald Butt, were never going to see America. And Archibald Butt might be a whole story in himself. Yeah. He was the personal attache from President Taft sent to the Vatican to get dirt on his upcoming opponent, Wilson, on the upcoming presidential election. I'm telling you, I haven't discovered anything in my reading, except it's confirming everything I've already heard. Wow. And I think anybody would come to the conclusion oh, that if you read all these books, you start going, this was no accident. No, at not all. at all. It's not at all. There was... You know, so you think this is, so there's, so there's, there's some sort of dirtiness that happened that caused the Titanic to sink. They don't want that to ever come out, and someday it might. Absolutely. And you're the one that's yeah. be that guy to uncover it. You know, so what I'm doing, and I, I love this information. It's making everyone go pick up the book. Don't <laughs> listen anymore before <laughs> Doctor Stead gets it away. I don't want that to happen. Please don't. Okay. That's me and all these things and these great stories. And we, again, this is a shorter segment. The one thing I want to ask you 
is what is your goal? You said this is your first book on the Titanic. You want to write more books on the Titanic. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. My goal is easy. The goal is not nothing to do with Dr. Stead. Has nothing to do with W.T. Stead. It has everything to do with his lifelong pursuit and now my lifetime pursuit of exposing the evil of sex trafficking in America that's still going on today. Uh, I fully expect I'll be uh, T-boned at some intersection in the middle of the night, Northern Iowa, mysteriously, if I get too close to the, the reality. But the Harvey Weinsteins and the Jeff Epsteins of the world do not want the rock taken off and exposing these little scurrying things underneath well, is, this, is this in the Titanic book? You talk about this all or not? Absolutely. And then at the end, uh, I ultimately reference people on how to get involved with your local community on how to identify sex trafficking. For example, Ashton Kirshner, who is, uh, is one of my, he doesn't know me and I don't know him, but I know he grew up in Iowa. So I take credit for Iowa. I can try to get that introduction at one point in time. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I'm this connecting celebrities, all these things. And this he has a he has a group called Thorn that's uh, involved in sex trafficking prevention. Let's get uh, Ashton and I on the same program and talk about this issue. This would be a wonderful introduction for you to him because he and I are pulling on the rope the same way, trying to undermine what's going on. The evil still goes. Every day you go to a local Target or your big store, you're going to see yeah. uh, 20 young people on the wall missing. Half of those probably are in sex. Oh, God. So, so, so to try to understand your book, your book's about, about William, um, but it's, you talk Titanic and explain his mission too. So Absolutely. his mission is all about exposing sex trafficking. And uh, the back end third will fully, I, I go around the country speaking to other surgeons and docs on how to better identify sex traffickers within your practice. I probably, we never had training on how to identify the tattoos and the mannerisms and what's going on that some patient in front of you or client might be sex trafficked. Now we know those techniques and uh, I go and will speak to people in regard to that. And uh, so the book's not about me. It's not about WT. It's about his mission, his life mission, and now mine to expose the underlying belly in America and in the world of sex trafficking. And trafficking of humans is there's more traffic, more slavery in America. I'm sorry, more slavery in the world right now than ever, any time um, in history. Truly, any in, the world, history. in the world. And a huge subset of that is sub-sex sex trafficking. It's, right. it's and, wrong. Uh, uh, Dean Kane was on my show. He's a big proponent of the, the sex uh, trafficking yeah. movement as well. I Another guy that's really doing a lot of stuff that's out there. So there's definite... Definitely fits. So are, the next book, is it going to be just about sex trafficking? What are you looking to write next after this? Oh, next, next book, certainly I, I set out, I thought I could really wrap this book up in a year. It's been two or three years and I'm still working on it. I have to get to England with my son, LJ Stead, who's a fellow podcaster out on the West Coast. And uh, he and I are going to get, we, right now we meet weekly with Clive Stead, who's the great grandson, the, the closest descendant of WT, and we meet with him weekly on a zoom we're going to go over and collaborate some stuff and then bring it back so this book series is going to be two or three to get that off of that hitting icebergs in life which we all do we've spun off the little series thanks to jack canfield he said stetter this is a great idea chicken soup for the soul have something titanic times two unsinkable and seven proven steps and those seven proven steps you know like we are all think of the titanic it was unsinkable, but three compartments sunk. Mm 
And let's say my compartment, uh, let's say I lose my job today. That's one compartment sunk. Uh, my wife leaves me, compartment two sunk, and I get a health concern. Any of us are three turns from being homeless in Venice and California. So it, we're, we need to teach people to know how to go through the steps of what now, what next, and why not? And the biggest step is don't think you're unsinkable. All right. We're all unsinkable. When you're seeing that homeless guy you're walking by going, oh, poor him. That can be you, buddy. Be respectful. Give some grace. Be kind. Because we all are sinkable. That's the word. So one. Absolutely. Where can we purchase the book? Where can we go? It'll it'll be. It's not out yet, but it'll be on Amazon. What about the book? What about your current book? Uh, it'll be all. will be on Amazon. We're we're right now. Hybrid publishing, and it'll be out soon. Oh, so really, right now you're just getting people to Titanic Times, right? Start start calling uh, Amazon right now and saying, "Where's that book?" That'll be get me going on the pre-sales. All right, we'll I, definitely do it. I, I want to win the conspiracy category for uh, number one, but it's not. It's historical friction. All right. Okay, what about, so the Titanic book is not out either, the first one? Nope. The, nope. the one nope. that you have, oh, okay. None, okay, I'm understanding that. So yep. you have a website, right, for people to go right yep. now? Right? Yep, you can go to titanictimes.org. Uh, it's just kind of an up and running little website that's getting going uh, that kind of talks about all this because during the COVID, I hit a Titanic time. I hit an iceberg, my uh, health iceberg. My son hit a financial iceberg. And we, during the COVID times, talked uh, once weekly and did a series of which we've labeled Titanic times. So we want to welcome the community of everybody else who's hitting iceberg. Everybody listening to your show right now is in some type of iceberg situation if they start thinking about it. It might be a new relationship. It right. might be meaning the good Titanic might be something bad, but you're getting uh, you're coming up against something that's new to you. It might be a graduation, might be confirmation, might be a new job, might be an old job. But don't think you can't go down like the Titanic. You th flood three compartments. Your life is changed. All right. All right. Well, thanks again for coming yeah. on the program. You're Thank you so very, very much. You're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show. And one of the things that people forget about all the time is what are what's in products. Some, some products, you know, we put things in our bodies. We put things on our bodies. We don't know what the chemicals are in those. And my guest today has a story that's going to talk us more about that. So I'm excited to welcome Zurika Denton. She's the owner of Zurika of Malibu Skincare. Zurika, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, but you have a story. You have a mission of why you created Zurika of Malibu Skincare. And tell us what that journey was. Tell me about it. Well, several years, actually, it's almost about eight or nine years ago, I was working as a fragrance model for one major cosmetic companies. And because I was out four or five hours a day spraying those perfumes on the people and I started getting sick. And over the period of time, I got so sick, I had to give up for the job. And I ended up in the hospital with a uh, surgery that lasted almost like six hours, I almost actually died. Oh, no. It out there were chemicals that were inside the fragrance that I wasn't aware of whatsoever. Right. Isn't it? And we're just talking fragrance, but so many other things are very damaging to our bodies. And yet we put them on them or eat it or, or you know or breathe it in and don't understand the, the, the causes that can happen. And that, that led to your mission, didn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. I was so at the time and I thought to myself, remember lying in an um, uh, intensive care and could barely move. I had the tubes coming from everywhere. It was, it was really horrifying. And I was thinking to myself, if I make out from this alive, I'm going to make sure I'm going to let as many people know as possible uh, regarding this issue because people don't know, manufacturers don't tell us because they don't have to. They're protected by the trade secret. They don't have to tell us what's on the, in a product. They just say, for instance, if you take a fragrance, it just says fragrance. And you think, okay, it's a fragrance, but you don't know what's in that fragrance. It could be anywhere to 3,000 chemicals that, that creates that particular smell. And we, I didn't know that. And majority of people still, still don't know it. They're not aware of it. Wow. That, if, yeah. Uh, and, 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 so is that why you created your fragrance? That that's why the line of, first of all, I couldn't use anything out that was on the market. I had to start from scratch making my own stuff. Fortunately, I knew a little bit about it because I worked as a beauty consultant for many years. I studied chemistry and I had some ideas. And I grew up on a farm with all natural organic stuff, no chemicals. So I had a pretty good idea how to put some things together. And I decided to create my own line. But my main main goal and main mission is to really get as many people to understand what it is they use when, when they're putting the lotion on themselves, when they're bathing their baby in a bubble bath, or they're putting a, a cream on their face, or what candle they're burning in their homes, or what they use to clean. Because all those products, if you really look at if you turn around, you look at a label and it says ingredients, I guarantee you 99% you're going to see the fragrance on it. And that's where the, a lot of chemicals are in it. Every single bad chemical that possibly exists inside those fragrances. I mean... Honestly, I it's really scary. I mean, for instance, the washing detergents, I mean, they are filled with those chemicals. If you see those commercials, they can last up to two weeks. What do you think it makes them last yeah. two weeks? No. <laughs> so you created, created this fragrance and you're talking fragrances. Is, is that a perfume? Define what a fragrance is. The fragrance is a, it's what they call perfume or fragrance. Both are actually similar. And there are some perfumes that are pure and natural, but very rare. Most of them are made from chemicals. And those that were my concern is because the ones they use in uh, laundry detergents and dryer sheets and room fresheners and candles, in body lotions, the shampoos, and the baby products, those are my biggest concerns. When I look at the label and I see the fragrance, it really makes me feel, oh my God, when they're going to stop this. So when you created your products, you put it through all the different things. Oh yes, I made sure there's none, there's none of this toxic stuff that's going to affect it because some of those chemicals are really deadly, seriously. I mean, they could cause breast cancer, they could cause, uh, they mean to become sterilized, they make women difficult to, to conceive. The babies, they can end up having uh, those, uh, what's it that, um, when they get all active and very hard to control uh, the, the children, I think that they're- Hyperactivity disorder. That's it, right, it's one of those in oh, kids. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. They can also create a cancer in a child when it's born because it's grown in mother's womb. And we can cause a lot of really chaotic things in, in our bodies if we are not aware of it. All right, so continuing uh, from that process, you created the products in a line how difficult was that? Was that easy to do and to go from a fragrance model? You said you had some of the experience you understood to then having your own business. 
but it wasn't actually that easy. It took, it took a couple of years. You have to do testing and, uh, and trying, and there's a certain things you can put together and some things you cannot. And of course, you want to make a product that has a shelf life. You know, it's, it's, it's not the easy process, but, but I managed to do it. It took me about two years. All right, so let's continue. So you put this all together, right? Yeah. You put this, this fragrance together and all this stuff. What's, what has been the journey of your product since then? Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, I had actually, I was very fortunate. I've won about four, four different awards. This is one of the best companies in Los Angeles. Oh, it's, it's only two, because my products really, they are very good for a specific niche. And hopefully by people, me talking about more and more, people be aware of, to go to more, not necessarily my products, but more towards the products who are, don't have chemicals, who don't have a fragrance in them, who are more healthier for them and their family. So um, for me, is being a, a I've sold mostly in the spas and the health food stores because that's the type of niche of yes. uh, customers that understand what I'm talking about. You know, so, get, a, so getting on the radio and TV is to get rich people that might not be in those spas. Or exactly. Yeah, my, my goal is for them to understand. Be really careful what you're putting on your body. Take a little time. Read those labels. If you don't understand what it says on there, you can go on Google. I guarantee you'll find the answer for every single ingredient that's listed. They will tell you how toxic it is. Is it toxic? Is it good for you? Wow. So basically, need to educate ourselves. Definitely. Yeah. That is truly the bottom line. Definitely yeah. educate ourselves. And if we yeah. don't educate ourselves, we miss out on everything. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had no clue, Neil. I mean, I used to have every fragrance you can imagine. I used to have on my oh, shelf. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Use it. But I didn't use it every day but like I was, when I was working as a fragrance. But I discovered that those chemicals actually... They, they, they stay in a body, they stay in a fat tissue, they accumulate over a period of time. So if you use it every single day, over that period of time, it will accumulate and that's where the problem starts. Right, so that's, that's, yeah, that's where a lot of manufacturers, they say, oh, well, we only have a 0.1% of fragments in the product that is considered safe. But guess what? It's not safe because that accumulates in a body. It's like, imagine having an empty glass, you keep putting a drop of water each day. Well, eventually the glass is going to be full. The same thing with these chemicals being accumulated in our body. They just accumulate over a period of time. So let's look at this. Uh, You talked about the fragrances and all the different things, the product, you're bringing this mission out. And now you want people that can go purchase your product online. You know, they're at the help, they're at the stores, they're at different places, but now they can be educated by you, but also can check it out. Where's the best place that people can pick out your product? they can go on my website. I mean, if they have any questions, they're not sure about something, just please send me an email. I'll be happy to respond to you. If you, um, it's, uh, I mean, they don't have to. I just want to basically, I want them to know what they should. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely want them to know what you want them to know that this is the place. So they can go to your website, just search Zurika Denton. You're going to find her. Yeah. You're looking for, you're looking to educate people that might not even buy your product. You want them to finally know these things, how dangerous they are and the toxins that are in things and make sure that it doesn't happen to them like it happened to you. 
I go, you know, if they want to purchase my product, that's great. You know, that's fine. I'm, I'll be happy if they do. But if they don't, that's okay. I want them just to know, to be aware, not to have to go through what I went through. And believe me, it wasn't very pleasant. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome, Neil. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show. And I mean, oh my gosh, when we talk history, my guest is going to really give us a historical lesson. I'm very lucky to have on the program today, author Judith Mudd Kringlemans, author of Flowers for B Brother Mudd. How are you, Judith? Thanks for stopping by. I'm good. I'm great, Neil. Thanks for inviting me. So tell me about, a bit about your background before we talk, we get into the book. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I um, wrote a memoir, Flowers for Brother Mudd, about my uh, origin story, my coming of age story. Um, why did I do that? Because I thought, well, you know, I've had a successful career as a diplomat and uh, been around the world and um, in, in uh, the diversity of the world. Uh, and um, I benefited so much uh, from it. And I thought that people who feel marginalized, or people who want to challenge uh, all kinds uh, from all a lot of different groups that um, they they might be inspired by my uh, story to uh, try to do something different uh, that also serve that serves themselves as well as the country. And I think that's that's powerful to write that book because of the times of what you went through. So explain some of the things in your memoir that will blow people away of what you've lived through? Well, yes, I was born in uh, the Jim Crow South in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and uh, even though Kentucky is not deep South, Kentucky in many ways uh, still holds on to a lot of those tropes of uh, the pre-Civil War time. Uh, and uh, that gives you some kind of indication of just how much uh, they took over the culture. So um, when uh, slavery ended and uh, 25, 30 years later, the codes, the black codes came in uh, that were supposed to make us separate but equal. But we all know that we did not become separate and equal, even if anybody wanted that. And so growing up, I grew up in that kind of uh, circumstance uh, after World War II, uh, where we were really uh, in a corner, cut off from the rest of uh, society. And I was saved by the fact that uh, I belong to, at that time, a minority religion in my hometown of Louisville, uh, which the Catholic Church, but which had segregated churches. There oh, were two churches. And um, so I could develop my dreams in this very narrow space with these parents uh, who had had, uh, who had gone through the uh, disrespect and the, uh, the hum humiliation of uh, separate but equal. As a child, um, when we integrated a neighborhood uh, in Louisville, uh, the Ku Klux Klan burnt across in our yard. 
1954, September, uh, just when the Supreme Court had uh, ruled uh, just after that. And so it was kind of like this sudden opening up of my eyes of what people were whispering about. Uh, I felt completely uh, confused because uh, being a devout Catholic, uh, I felt like, why would anybody want to use the cross to, as a sign of, of hating us? And, you know, fortunately, I had parents who were very caring and thought, uh, tried to keep all of that away from us. And at the same time, I had neighbors who were very welcoming on both sides. And they were, of course, white. But uh, so, you know, we were caught in this dynamic. And as I got older and discovered the story of the founding fathers, of which, of course, I had known uh, for some time, but when I discovered that we were not considered a part of we the people, I was brokenhearted. I really was as a child. And uh, had it not been for the uh, the love and the support and the encouragement of uh, my my community and my church, even though it was segregated, I don't think I would have made it out of there w- with my sanity, or would have been able to no. really good. So I mean, that's just terrible. We're just talking about specifically segregation. Um, how were you ever, did you ever fear for your life during that time? Well, um, we kept, yes, uh, no. I mean, you always stayed away. You, you kept your head down. You always felt there was a threat. After they brought the cross in our yard, uh, we were afraid because soon after uh, our dog was poisoned and died. Oh, no following spring. Uh, in the meantime, my brother would uh, would ride his bicycle on the sidewalk. Was uh, The neighbors would forbid him. They would come out, wave their newspapers in front of his bicycle. And so my uncles had to take him to court, my father and my uncles, uh, to get a, a take uh, the person who did this to court to swear out a peace bond. Uh, and uh, we we became very, uh, we started, I started thinking very uh, much like, oh, we have to be, stay one at home. And so, yes, you were afraid in that sense. And um, we never went out. We, 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 we stayed in groups. When we went out, it was together. Uh, when we would go through the public parks, we would get down on the floor. My father would tell us that this was a white park. And you're not, we're not allowed here. So we would get on the floor. Of course, as children, when we were, especially when I was very young, we thought this was fun. But the fear, the the fear builds up in you because you begin to understand that you're different. By the time you're a teenager, then you see there are not the same possibilities for you. Mm-hmm. And that's where I felt I was safe because uh, the sisters of St. Ursula. Mm-hmm. felt like there's always room for someone who's smart. There's always room at the top. Oh, these were some educated, wonderful women, white women from that area of the country. But, you know, they, they took me away from that world. It was the world of learning, the world of excellence. So by the time I got to Baltimore 
uh, into Morgan State University, a historical black uh, college and university now, uh, I was, yes, I was afraid of my shadow. From the time I left Louisville to the time I got to Baltimore, almost 24 hours on the train, I never once got up from my seat. That shows you just kind of how awkward and, and unprepared I was to be in the outer world. Uh, I had never mixed really with any group, large group of whites, except the girls at my school and the sisters. So, you know, we put them kind of in a separate category, the nuns and they're black and, and you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And so um, it was a very uh, cloistered type of upbringing that did have its advantages, though, uh, in the sense that you had to draw on yourself. You had to create your own dreams. I think many uh, children uh, and people have to, are living like that today, you know, just trusting their own tribe, their own group, their own surroundings. Uh, so... Um, I think that story of personal courage, of, of, of developing it through support and love is one that people can take away from my story. Um, by the time I got to Baltimore and I was in college, I was, my eyes were always opened on new things that Blacks had been doing, uh, that Whites were doing uh, with Blacks, even though it was segregated and really considered a part of the South. But for me, it was like coming to the North. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I really, so crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I was constantly learning uh, and getting out of my little comfortable hole, you know, my little warm uh, cavern. And um, I, of course, uh, I tell the, those uh, uh, fun loving events or strange events in my book. Uh, and um, I developed, though, this desire to become a diplomat, and nobody knew right. what, what a foreign service officer was, which was an FSO, uh, which I would say I'm going to be an FSO, and I learned about public diplomacy and public affairs and that you could actually go out and talk about American culture. And so I said, I'm going to go to Georgetown and get an MSFS. And people would look at me like, what is she saying? Because it sounded. So, wow. So, I mean, <laughs> you've really gone from a time where you had no rights at all to a time later that you really evolved. As yes. a, a, and you want to teach people from this book, what is the ultimate goal from people reading your memoir? Oh, the ultimate goal is that people feel inspired to use what they have to get more, to find courage, to trust in uh, books, in history, uh, in the stories of uh, people that have gone before and their success, and people who've really uh, accomplished huh, in whatever field they feel uh, attracted to, and not to give up. No one ever really encouraged me in that field. Nobody ever pointed me in that direction. But I knew if I learned a language, so I became serious about French. I became serious about participating in international events and won a Fulbright scholarship to go to India after I graduated. Oh. Yes, which really then 
tested my desire. Was I going to really make it abroad? Was this a dream or a reality? Well, you can imagine two years of living and, and teaching and studying in India. Then I came back and went for my master's degree and eventually joined the Foreign Service, but was very tempted to, to, to join the CIA. So, oh my gosh. So, the story, your, your story, could that story be a movie someday? Is that something you'd like to have? Oh, I would love to see it happen. Uh, it was suggested uh, by the good people at Ex Libris that uh, it would make an interesting kind of a documentary. Uh, although, of course, they'd have to go put a lot of money into it to go into uh, the places. But maybe not so much today uh, if I could get a team uh, together or someone could. You should definitely consider a documentary. Where can people purchase your book and learn more about oh, you? Oh, yes. They can go online and get it at Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Ex Libris. Uh, it's available at all the major book, uh, book websites. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on. You have so many stories, but people need to go pick up the book today because trust me to hear these stories. And when, you know, some people feel bad about their life and say, I was down. You are the story of going from rock bottom and the challenges of the times you're living in to success beyond belief in living in a life of purpose and driven and experiences the galore that you dealt with. So I appreciate you coming by. Yes. And if I may say my new book, which is called Chocolates for Mary Julia, will be out uh, in about a month. So uh, oh, you're going to have to come back on again and talk about that? <laughs> sure. Yes, I would. I would love to. Thank I, you so much. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we will be back in just a moment. 